Welcome to Speaking of Partnership, the show that brings you the personal partnership stories of experts from all walks of life so you can turn their stumbling blocks into stepping stones to healthy, long-lasting partnerships. I'm your host, Ken Bechtel. You know that the partnership game is not easy, but it's so worth it. If you're struggling with attracting or maintaining partnerships, go to speakingofpartnership.com right now, click on the big red button, and attend a free webinar on the secret to starting your ideal partnership today. Now, let me introduce you to today's guest. I'm incredibly excited to bring you today's feature guest, Barry Selby. Barry, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Nice to be here, Ken. Well, it's great to have you. And, and for anybody who may not be familiar with Barry, let me give you a little bit of his background. Barry Selby is a passionate champion for the divine feminine. He helps strong, successful, committed women heal their hearts, own their self-love and magnificence, embrace their feminine majesty so they become a powerful, positive force in the world and attract their true divine masculine partnership in relationship. With over 30 years of study of personal development, interpersonal relationships, and embodied understanding of the polarity dance of masculine and feminine, he helps women break the cycle of failed relationships and heartbreak so they can attract their true divine partnership. Now, his number one best-selling book, 50 Ways to Love Your Lover, helps both singles and couples create rich and rewarding partnerships. He brings deep compassion, masculine presence, and wise guidance to assist his clients in their journey of true love. Barry, do us a favor. If there's anything that I missed in that intro, please fill that in and then give us an idea of just how did you get started doing the work that you're doing now? <laughs> um, let me think. I'm not sure if I can add anything to the bio because there's, there's so much more brewing all the time. So I'll just live, say what we're going with and if it unfolds further, we will. Um, so that's how I got started. Really, it was um, in some ways a sense of inquiry and also an emergency because I was really sick and tired of messing up my love life, to be blunt. I have, I mean, looking back at my upbringing, my parents, my parents were together 59 years until my mother passed away in 2012. And the one thing I took away from them was you can be together for life. That was kind of the imprinted message I had in my mind, in my heart. But I kept finding relationships that kept ending. I was breaking up. I was causing upset. I wasn't getting what I wanted. So it really provoked this, um, I would say curiosity, but that seemed like an understatement, a passion to find out more about what works, what doesn't work because I wasn't getting it right. And even when I've been in this journey for at this point, it was 2006, I've been in the journey probably 20 something years at that point, I was still messing things up. And that put me into a deeper dive, which took me into a whole, um, fulfilling and enlightening exploration of the masculine feminine polarity of relationship and also about men and women functioning well on the planet. And that's what really launched my work in the world that I'm doing now. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we definitely have a lot in common in that way because I had a very similar path to getting into what I do, which is, again, working with women and men on, on the 
how we work individually and, and as a couple and helping women and mm-hmm. find the way to, you know, get their needs met and be their best expression of themselves in their relationship. So one right. of the reasons I was attracted to having you on the show is we have a lot of things in common there. And I'm wondering, you know, I've found that it's helpful to have kind of a guiding principle or maybe it's a quote or a mantra, some kind of a touchstone that you can come back to when you're getting off in the weeds, you know, and kind of getting off your track on partnership. <laughs> and I, I just wonder, what do you use to, to kind of get you back on track? And, and how can our listeners apply that in their lives? Hmm. What particular things. The one thing that drives me when I do what I do is one of the things I learned from one of my teachers is that for me as a man in my masculine heart, I must be living my purpose in the world before I do anything else. So before a relationship, before anything I do, my priority is knowing why I'm here and what I'm about and what I'm delivering and serving in the world. So purpose-driven life is kind of the focus. The second thing, actually, and it's funny, this has been on the periphery for a while, but I realize it's been what's driving me, is that my passion to serve and support women being the feminine partly comes from, I'm not going to say I put my full energy on this, but this partly comes from the Dalai Lama's quote from 2006 when he was at a peace, um, sorry, at a, it was a peace conference, I think, in Vancouver, and he's quoted as saying that the world will be saved by the Western woman. And I really felt his intention behind it. I believe what he didn't say, or the word missing was feminine in terms of what I think he meant was that the world will be saved by the Western feminine woman. And so I've been driven by that message in my own work, support women in being their feminine, because big, spec, big picture wise, I'm looking at helping save the planet. Nice. So that, that pushes me. <laughs> yes, that's a pretty good motivator. Yes. So tell me a little bit about that. When, you, when you're talking about, you know, being a champion for the divine feminine, how does that show up in your work? What do you What do you mean by that? Um, on the On the micro level, in some sense, what it's about is, you know, as listeners may may realize, I have an English accent, being raised born, born and raised in England. Uh, although I come from a working class family, even as a not an upper class person. The idea of being a gentleman respecting women was in my DNA, it's in my bones, it's the way I was raised. So opening the door, giving them space, um, you know, helping them with a coat, helping them when they're carrying the bags, these sort of things are just innate in my DNA. And seeing women now living in Los Angeles, seeing women, um, one, fighting for their independence, which is a whole other conversation when it started, seeing women who don't take support from men or men who don't offer at least, that that's... Um, it stresses me, upsets me. So there's always this innate level of desire to serve and make a difference. Even if it's just opening the door for a woman. And even if she turns around and said, I can do it myself, it's really from the point of view of saying, it's not because you can't do it, it's because I respect you. And that changes women's response. On the macro level, um, it really is a sense of realizing that women, and I had this, um, I'm going to say this, debate, I'll say it that way. Um, I was doing a live stream broadcast last night after reading the article in um, a website about the screening in Texas at the Alamo Alehouse for uh, Wonder Woman that was a screening for women only where all the staff in the, in the um, theater and the projectionists and, and the ushers, all the women as well. So there's no men in the, in the house. Mm-hmm. And all this, all this reaction from men about it. And the realization in the article, you know, it was very slanted. The author was very much about being somewhat militant and anti-men in her rhetoric, although some of the women in the broadcast didn't agree with that. I felt this sense of, again, remembering just how much women are not equally respected or honored or 
revered in this world as as the men are. And it is a selfish thing. Um, we have, as men, unfortunately, taken the world for granted that we run the show, and women have had to play second fiddle to that for a long, long time. And I don't agree with that, personally. Yeah, no, that's that's a really great point. And, you know, it, I really like the distinction you made of the Western feminine woman. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that I recognized years ago, and it, it actually came as a result of being at a men's retreat. And I was at this retreat with about 100 other men. And from the time it started on Friday evening till Saturday afternoon, the shift in the room was unbelievable. And the love that was flying around that room just blew my mind. And I remember this thought came to my mind that the most loving thing in the room or in the world is a room full of men. And the most powerful thing in the world is a room full of women, mm-hmm. which is the exact opposite of how we typically are portrayed. Yes. Right. <laughs> exactly. And it occurred to me, it's like, yeah, when the feminine power and that creativity and that, that, that feminine presence shows up, it's unstoppable. It's amazing. I mean, and as men, we don't necessarily know what to call it, but we're totally drawn to it. I call it life force energy. You can call it whatever you want. But when that's yes. being emanated by a woman, it's like, whoa, we're just like, I don't know what it is, but there's something about her. We're drawn true. to that. We want to support that. Unfortunately, like you said, there's a lot of cultural programming that yes. doesn't align, doesn't support, you know, both genders in a way that we can both bring our gifts forward. The, the challenge is, and this is, as you said, with being in the men's room, a retreat with men in a room and feeling the love that's there, this is the thing that men in the culture are not generally raised with because we're imprinted and educated, although not from school, but just from life itself, that our way in the world is to be competitive and combative. Mm-hmm. to dominate, beat out other men to the win the victory, to get the job, to be the one in charge, to get the woman even. And so when men go into retreat, and as you said, exactly what you said, I love this because it is, I've been in rooms like that with men too. When the walls come down, and we realize that together we are actually brothers underneath the skin, that we are so compassionate, supporting each other in all our wins. It's, it's not public expression. So the challenge with that is how do we bring that in the world without other men sort of feeling like they have to fight against it or argue against it. The thing about women, which I, I, I said this on, the video, on my live stream last night, you know, in a very simplistic way, since women give birth, nobody would be here if it wasn't for women, physically speaking. I mean, just being, there's a yeah. joke, but it's like, the reality is women have that much power. The power of life is a woman's energy. It's a woman's life. That is the life force, as you put it. Women have this incredible energy, which is so attractive. The way that um, the attraction works in the masculine and feminine polarity, which we sort of touch into, is women's, what attracts men to women, it's really the light and the way they move and shine because that's the core element of what they are. So it's not necessarily the exact specifics of the measurements, it's how they move their body, how they bring their light forward. For men, sorry, for women attracted to men, our presence, our depth, and our, pre- our ability to stand with them is what's more attractive to them because they can trust us. This is the trust that women need from men to feel safe. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Really well said. Thank you, Barry. You're welcome. So one of the things that uh, our listeners have told us they love about the show, Barry, is the generosity of our guests and how willing they are to share their own personal 
stories and experiences. And what I'd like to ask you to do is share with us a time in your life when, well, you, you kind of tripped up in a partnership. And just tell us what happened. What were you doing? What did you trip on? And then what were you able to learn from that that helped you move forward? Um, boy, which one do I choose? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> a few. Let, me, let me start with my youngest memory of this. Okay. Um, my early dating life in my teens and in my 20s, as I, um, as I experienced it being in England, and, and certainly part of it's contributed to my uh, somewhat at that time reserved and um, uneducated nature, but in my dating life, I would be um, attracted to a, to a girl in my teens and then to my 20s too. We'd go out a few times and be romantic. It'd be nice. It'd be a wonderful connection. And it would only last about a month, if I was lucky, maybe two. Because at some point in time, there would be a discord, an upset, or an argument. And I'd quit. And I'd leave. Now, looking back, and this is, this is a teaching that I've used in some of these ways because it's what we all go through, is I had my parents relationship as my model of ideal relationship. That's what I took in as a kid when I was uh, born. We are programmed by the reality around us for the first seven years of life without any filtration because the way our minds develop, and this is actually, I can retribute this to Bruce Lipton's work with the biology of belief. We are not born, first of all, we're not born with user manual. So, you know, they my parents don't have a, really have a clue. They have to guess their way through. What happens is we, at the first six, seven, eight years of life, are sponges taking the world around us of learning how to live, function, and be in the world. So relationships in particular are the things we see usually in our most immediate experience from our parents. So we look at our parents and see how they love each other and how they express. And it's not like we make notes or we listen to what they say, but we take in the experience of watching how they interact. And that imprints upon us how we should be when we grow up. And so my breakups that kept happening in my teens and 20s was because growing up in my family life, my parents, to my memory, never argued. There was something about the relationship where they either hid it away from us or never had issues, which I don't think was true. But my memory was they never argued. Yeah. And so my programming was love means no argument. And that was the underlying subconscious programming that was running my life when I was dating. So if we had an argument that meant no love, I would leave. And it was very simple, but extremely heartbreaking because I was forcing myself out of possibilities of relationship more than once because I didn't know better. And so it was kind of the part that was going, okay, what is up with this? Because this was going on from late teens till mid twenties. And thankfully a friend of mine um, told me about this thing called a seminar, which I'd never been to before in my late twenties. And that put me into this wonderful exploration of personal growth and human development that showed me one, my own history and my reflection, but also two, how to relate to each other. And that opened the door for my rest of my life. Yeah. Yeah, that it's so valuable to remember, and in the moment, oftentimes we don't, that, like you said, we learn this from the environment we were in very early on. Yes. And right. it's funny because as you were saying that, you know, the, the kind of program you were imprinted with was that love means there's no arguments. And mm -hmm. you instantly reminded me of a very dear friend of mine named Julie who told me that her, uh, her parents... They were that like really passionate yell and screaming at each other. And that's how they showed their love. Yes. And she was adopted. And so she's like, well, I know I'm not going to inherit that like genetically. <laughs> that's a genetic <laughs> thing. However, right. I don't want that to be my life. I don't want that to be how love has to be expressed with that kind of intensity and that kind of yelling and screaming. 
And she goes, I never mm-hmm. questioned they love each other, but I hated the form that it took. Right. And so she's been very actively engaged in, in you know, not following that pattern that she could have very easily gotten imprinted with. And maybe right. because she was adopted and she could go, oh, that's I'm going to call that an adopted trait and say that it's not mine. And she could separate from it somehow. But it's true. We the get these approach. ideas of that's what we saw. So we think that's it. Yes. And the thing is, that it's what's, I say this, you know, I share different experiences of, of reading things in the articles and news about people's love experiences. But the truth is, as, as you'll experience that, it's easy if you fall into it to take on some pretty wacky, wild and abusive relationship um, frames into your own life if you don't know better. And so there are people who, who are in adult relationships who found themselves in abusive relationships thinking that's okay because where parents abuse each other, whether it was physical, emotional, emotional, whatever it was. And so they think that must be the only way to get love. And so they've got this limited programming that keeps bringing them into a very dysfunctional relationship. So yes, absolutely. Having an awareness is the first step to changing it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you made that point, Barry, because it, it is, if, if that's all we've seen, because I mean, how much do we see of like our friends, parents, we don't see that. That's the, like, everybody's nice when somebody's over at the house kind of thing. Right. But what we've seen and we go, oh, well, that's just how it works. We don't realize there's another option. So we don't realize we have choice. Right. We just think that's the default. That's how it works. Even when, like and you said, it can time. be like it's 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 abusive. How do you how would you think that love is abusive? But if that's the right. only you know, examples and experience you've ever seen, you're like, well, it must be. Well, the thing and this is the piece from Bruce Lipson's work is that he talks about and it's really about brain development. So if there's two main parts of our brain that we are focusing on when we're born, our subconscious mind, which is our midbrain, is what's really operating. We're still learning about the world and the way it works. Our conscious brain or the frontal cortex doesn't really develop and become, like come online like a computer. It doesn't come online until our later, like seven, eight, nine years old. That frontal cortex is the gatekeeper that filters things in. So we actually choose consciously at that point what we want, what we don't want, have intentions, our ego, that sort of thing comes online. But up until that point, we've been dumping into this open vat all these memories and thoughts and beliefs about things that are now in our subconscious automatically. So as an adult, our conscious mind is saying, I want this, 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 and this. But some conscious mind is going, I'm going to get that, 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 and that, because the programming is different from what we're intending. What people don't realize is that our subconscious mind is magnitudes, hundreds of times more powerful energetically than our conscious mind. So to change our subconscious programming has to be done intentionally, not accidentally. And so our conscious mind saying, I'm going to do a vision board and create what I want and have what I happen. It might happen, but well, 99 times out of 100, it won't, because your subconscious mind is going to pull you off track to where it knows is comfortable. And it's that automatic programming that we have to um, unpack to change where we go in the future. Yes, yes. Yeah, and I, I think I'd add to that, that oftentimes, like if we use a vision board as an example, oftentimes what we're putting on there is a program. It's not even yes. our real thing that we want. It's what we're supposed to want, or you should aspire to these things. And so we put the great big house, or we put the you know fancy car when we're like, I really don't care, but I guess I'm supposed to have this stuff. Yes, true enough. Yeah, so it's it's really interesting. I'm, I'm glad you, you dove into that, because there, the difference between the power, as you called it, of the subconscious and the conscious mind is huge. And 
So it's a very active process in order to shift those belief systems. You can't just kind of casually go about it. You've got to be engaged or your subconscious will just take it back. It's kind of like, you know, nature, right? If you don't keep tending the field, right. nature will take it right back. Yeah, because a vision board is almost like whitewashing over rust. If you don't clean up the rust, it'll come through again. So you really have to really get clear about what it is, what you want, and also then what's in the way of that. So you can then make what you're going for really easy and clear. Yes. So it requires prep. Exactly. Like basically, you've got to prep the surface first. Yeah, I like that <laughs> analogy. It's whitewashing over rust. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. It's good for the moment, but not very exactly. long. <laughs> Next right. time it rains, it's all and it, over. And it, and it's interesting because you said that about vision boards. Um, I, I have an online program I created which has a vision board as one of the eight steps. Mm -hmm. And in the, the steps after the vision board, I actually had my clients sort of move through the intention and walk through, like, like the looking glass, walk through the vision board into the future they want to create. And what happens is for many of them, they see that vision in life and they go, you know, this isn't quite what I really wanted. And so what I actually say in the context of the program, I say, look, go into the future, step, flesh, it, flesh it out, take it on like a suit and try it out and test drive it. If you like it, wonderful. If you need to change it, go back and change your vision board. It's like the vision board is not a one-time thing. It's a work in progress. You can always refine and polish. And it's the thing about the vision board being adaptable that makes it more effective. And so it's having that sense of ability to change what you think is in law so you can make it be what you really do want. So it doesn't have to be the big house. Maybe it's going to be a cottage instead, or it's going to be a tent on a campsite. It's really up to you as you go into the vision to see how it feels when you try it on. Yeah, that's that's great. You know, and it's funny because as you were saying that, I was thinking of I, I give the same similar advice when uh, I'm helping women with their online dating profiles mm -hmm. because they're like, oh, I've written it and it's done. And they you know, when they look back, they're like, because it was hard. You know, it's hard to talk about yourself and what you want and put yourself out there. Right. And so we want it to just be done. And now it's magic and it's going to work. But then if you start attracting not the right people, it's like, well, then clearly something's being conveyed that isn't accurate for you. So we need to change that. Right. And keep updating exactly. and keep refining it. And it's really fascinating because, you know, human nature is we kind of want to take, you know, like path of least resistance, right? So, well, mm -hmm. what's the way yeah. we can just do it and not have to look, look at it ever again? <laughs> right. But That's the reality I mean, is like, we're keep evolving. So we've got to update things. We've got to refresh them. Yes. Oh, yeah. And the thing is, to be honest, a lot of times putting the first thing up, like throwing the first thing at the wall and it sticks, mm -hmm. it's really going to be a work in progress. It's a prototype and it's better to sort of maybe walk away from it a little bit, come back and then say, OK, is this really true for me? Yeah. And then you can change it, which is what you're doing with your clients, which is beautiful, is that you are helping them on that way because the first draft usually is a draft, not a final. So it's good to go back and say, let's look at it differently now. Yeah. What's really going on here? What do you really want? So that's smart. Yes. Yeah. And I mean. Part of, part of where that came from was I personally know I'm notorious for wanting to do one draft only. And it's <laughs> like, well, I'll just wait till the end and then I don't have to do any drafts because it was the last minute. And then it's just the first is the last draft. But it never turned out right. well. <laughs> you know, it's like there's so much <laughs> yeah. more that could have shown up if I would have just reviewed it. And like you said, done a draft, walked away, come back and went, oh, OK, yeah, this needs some polish here and there. So, yeah, it's it's. I think the, the crux of all this that we're saying, Barry, is, you know, the whole thing is a work in progress and there's some support needed because the subconscious is so powerful that we won't even notice right. we're doing these habits that don't serve us. Very true. Yes. Yeah. It's so hard to recognize that we're doing it. It's it's <laughs> I, I do a little exercise with with uh, the women I work with saying, 
you know, to, to check in on how much they're receiving and are they open to receiving from in like you were talking about, you know, a man offering something to you. And one of the ways I have them notice is notice how many times a day you say, I got it. When somebody mm-hmm. offers something. And literally most times before we're done having the conversation, they've said, I got it to me. They don't even realize it because it's just yeah. so natural. It's just a natural thing they've been doing for years and years and years. And I'm like, do you know you just said it? They're like, I did. <laughs> because it's so ingrained. Right. And it's not supporting yes, them. It's not what they really want to be doing, but it's the default. Right. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. I, I'm, I'm wondering, um, what's an example of a time in your life, and it could be, you know, romantic, family, career, whatever area, but what's one of your, what I call, proud partnership moments? In other words, when you think back on this experience, you just, you're like, that was so cool, and you can't help but smile. What's one of those? What's coming up, actually, is interesting. Um, part of my journey is I've become, a, I've become a, a spiritual practitioner at my spiritual center in Los Angeles, and I got licensed in that role uh, back in 2000. And part of the requirement of being on spiritual counselors is we get to uh, be on pulpit at certain times, probably once every three or four years, to lead parts of the service on Sundays. And I was um, in the position, and this is totally unplanned, but it was like scheduled three months ahead of time. I ended up being on stage leading the congregation, which is at that time, normally the congregation was about 11, 1200. But my first time on pulpit was September 16th, 2001. It was the Sunday mm. after September 11th. And I didn't know at the time, but I found afterwards, the sanctuary was probably doubly packed. Instead of being about 1,200 people, there were so 2,500 people were in that, that crammed in the room at that time. And so I got to go on stage, or I should say I was blessed to go on stage and lead the congregation for part of the service. And I felt this incredible expansion of my heart. One, because... I didn't die on stage, which is the first thing about fear of public speaking. <laughs> but the second part was is that I felt that they needed some sense of normalcy, that what I was doing, which was only really reading out some key things, doing the affirmations, reading the purpose statement, talking about what was coming up that week, just the stuff that was on the page in front of me. But by so doing, the presence that I was bringing without realizing I was doing it was, it was giving them a sense of calm. And I didn't know until afterwards how impactful that was because people came out after me and thanked me for that and I just was doing what I thought I was doing but the sense of and it wasn't ego pride it was about I was in the right place to be able to serve make a difference it really touched my heart and it felt so fulfilling because I knew that somewhere along the way I'd given over to something bigger than myself and I'd be able to serve a bigger cause and the truth was as a side effect and after speaking in front of two and a half thousand people my fear of public speaking pretty much evaporated because I survived Wait, say that last part again. <laughs> the, the 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 side benefit of this um, experience was having spoken in front of two and a half thousand people on that Sunday, my fear of public speaking had basically evaporated. Wow. Which I never expected, but I'm grateful for because it means being on stage does not give me any. I'm not so much. I won't. I, I can do about anything, but it's like I don't have that huge fear that I used to carry that I can't speak in front of more than three people. It's too much challenge. Now it's it's relatively easy. Wow. You know, I, I, I love that story, Barry. And one of the things that really stands out to me is we're talking about partnership. And what you just gave a great example of is how you were in partnership with a community. 
Yes. Because oftentimes we think partnerships one-on-one or maybe a couple people, but we don't realize that we're in partnership with communities all the time, whether it be your corporate yes. community or your spiritual community or, or just the you know physical community you live in, the town or village. And mm-hmm. all of that is going on at all times. And yes. the thing about partnership that's so intriguing to me is that the, the thing we do for partnership is never the easiest choice. So you going three people overwhelms me and now I'm in front of 2,500. You had lots of reasons <laughs> to bail, right? But yeah. at the same time, you're like, I'm in part, this is my role. This is where I'm supporting this community and what I do here. And this has been agreed to for a long time and I'm going to step up here. And the gift you received was that what you shared so wonderfully is now that fear is gone. Yeah. So, and it was totally in the place of in the moment, I wasn't planning this. And the, and the, the, the part of us also, by the way, um, when, when we when we as practitioners come in and we're in that role of being on pulpit, we don't go in the sanctuary right up front. We don't see people ahead of time. We go into the office to sort of get prayed in and get oriented. So when we came into the sanctuary, that was, and that was right before it was going to go up, that was the, um, the initial shock of seeing that many people in the place. Because usually we walk in the sanctuary, there's, there's hallways we walk in and it's all fine, but there was such a crowd we had to weave between everybody getting to the front of the, the uh, congregation. And it was obvious, but my mind was still not calculating or realizing that there was that many people in the sanctuary. So I was still kind of oblivious to what was coming forward, what I was going to be doing next. So the thing was, I was mercifully unaware of what I was going to be doing next in terms of not done, because it's my first time doing this. And the experience of going on stage, as I was going on stage, realizing how crowded the place was, just simply... Like I was already doing it, I couldn't stop now. Yes. <laughs> so the, the idea to bail was almost too late. It's like I'd already walked <laughs> through the gate before I could run away from it. <laughs> yes, yes, awesome, that's great. Well, Barry, we've actually arrived at a part of the show I call the bring it all home portion, and this is where we're gonna step away from stories. And I'm gonna ask mm-hmm. you to provide some very simple, concrete guidance for our listeners that they can apply in their partnerships right now. And what I'd like to start with is I'm wondering, what would you say is the best partnership or relationship advice that you've ever received? Hmm. I'm not sure. I'm trying to think back where I actually see this one, but the one I give all the time is to recognize that we are all individually whole and complete. So we don't need anything to fill up. So it's not about our, it's not our job to take from anybody, but it's a job to share from our overflow. And the recognition is that we always can serve somebody else. And in fact, one of the things I've learned along the way from my teachers is that to fill ourselves up, sometimes the best way to fill ourselves up is to fill somebody else up, to help them with something, to be of service, to make a difference. So I think that's probably the biggest lesson I've learned from multiple teachers about how to be in partnership. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And, and you know, I can speak personally as... I mean, just even like uh, leading a program or even when I do this, I'm so like rewarded every time I get off one of these. It's funny. My girlfriend used to be like, you really like that, don't you? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, she goes, you're so like energized when you get done interviewing someone. I'm like, I love it. I right. love getting to connect with these people and, and being able to help, you know, spread whatever information and sharing they're doing. And it's like, it totally fills me up. So yeah, it's, Mm-hmm. Not because I'm going, gimme, gimme, gimme. It's because I'm going, how exactly. can we just bring this exactly. together and bring this forward? 
Yes. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Well, sure. Barry, what would you say, if you had to pick one, what would you say is your, like, the book or the resource that you would recommend to our listeners and why that particular one? Mm, you besides my own book? <laughs> well, actually, I'd like you to speak um, to your own book first because I'm curious more about okay. that. Sure. Um, the reality is that book came through me in a very, uh, what we use, an unplanned way. In fact, I never planned on writing the book in the first place. It was literally came out of putting out some posts on social media about what I was expressing believing about relationships. I have a friend of mine who gave me some support saying, I'm going to get your message out there, put on social media statements, declarances, um, quotes that you believe are functional for healthy relationships. And I built a list of these. And I put those in a Word document thinking I'd use them at some point. And for about three weeks, a small voice in the back of my head said, write a book. And I argued with it and ignored it and didn't want to deal with it. And finally, I said, okay, fine. How do I do this? And it laid out everything I needed to do. And I realized I'd done half the work already. And I had the first draft done in six weeks. It took me, though, and six weeks I was like, wow, that's amazing. But the truth is, it took me another year to finish writing it because I got scared about what I was doing. Mm -hmm. So the book really is, um, a fairly, in some ways, it's really like a, I, would, <laughs> I can almost say it's like a relationship guide. For, it's like the um, relationship guide for idiots. It's a very simple book in some ways, but a very profound book. And it's 50 principles that are written in very conversational style that are very um, user-friendly for singles, couples, men or women. There's probably quite a few principles in the book that apply to gay or straight. So they're not really specific, specific to one particular corner of the relationship market. They fit for everybody. Um, it's self-published. It's been, it got a one bestseller on Kindle because I, I don't know how to do that now. And people love the book, and it's actually been a door opener for so many things for me. So the truth is the book is a message of love, of hope for people, and it also is a great introduction to the work I do. Excellent. Excellent. So if you had to pick one so, other one, what would you pick? I'm thinking because I actually have a few books in the, that I wrote about in the bibliography that I recommend. Um, boy. I would say, because I'm talking between two books, um, the one I'll go with actually is one of my favorite books that's been a powerful book for me as a man. But I think a lot of women read it too because it teaches them what really a man can be for them. And it's a book called uh, The Way of the Superior Man by David Data. Mm -hmm. And Data spelled D-E-I-D-A. -E um, the book's written for men, so it's short, short chapters because we have short attention spans. <laughs> but, also it's, but also it's very, and it's called The Way of the Superior Man, but I think it really should be is, it's the way of the evolved masculine, because this is what it really talks about. Men who live in the masculine who are not the old macho, me, my way, the highway type focus, lays out 30-something principles that are evolutionary in some ways and transformational for many men to realize what they're about. I actually heard about the book before I started with David Data from two different women who had the book because they said they wanted to find out what sort of man they really wanted to be in relationship with because the men they were meeting weren't matching that. And when they read the book, they went, oh, that's what I want. Mm -hmm. So the book's great for women as well as men. Yeah, no, it's amazing book. And I would agree with you. I think I've heard as many women recommend it to me as men. Yeah. So it's definitely a, a, a book for everyone. Well, Barry, I thank you for so much that you've shared today. This has been awesome. And I, I want to make sure that our listeners know how they can contact you because clearly you've got a whole lot more available for them. So <laughs> thank you. You know, what? where do they find out what you do? 
easiest thing is find me on social media or on my site, and it's all my name, Barry Selby. So if you just go to B A W R Y S E L B Y dot com, or you look at me on Twitter, Facebook, Periscope, LinkedIn, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you'll find my stuff all over the web. Excellent, excellent. And for everyone who's in the middle of doing something else, as you're listening to this podcast, we will have all the links to contact Barry on uh, his show page on the Speaking of Partnership website. So. Don't worry if you weren't someplace where you could write down, you know, the spelling of his name or anything. It'll be there. You'll just type in Barry and it'll go straight to his page and you'll be able to click on any of the links. So it'll be super easy for you. Well, Barry, your stories, your insights, really, really powerful. Thank you so much. I've I've so enjoyed it. And I know our listeners are just going to be unpacking this for a while. Thank you so much for being on the show. Um, absolutely. My pleasure, Ken. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a really enjoyable conversation. You're very welcome. It's been great to have you. Thank you for listening to Speaking of Partnership. Head over to speakingofpartnership.com for links and recaps of every show and so much more. Be sure you catch the bonus stories from our guests on Follow Your Yes Friday. It's easy to do. Just go to your favorite podcast directory, search for Speaking of Partnership, and click subscribe. Like what you hear? Leave us a rating and review on Stitcher or iTunes. The greatest compliment you can give the show is to refer us to someone else either in person or on the web. Have a great day. And remember, even when you stumble, you're still moving forward. Peace.